all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? Happy birthday weekend. <laughs> I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. And happy birthday weekend to you. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, follow us Insta, Twitter, Facebook, Twitch, TikTok at All Bad Things pod email us all that things pod at gmail.com join our facebook discussion group and our discord and uh i promise more uh game streaming yeah you going back to a regular schedule that back up i'm gonna yeah. try to do monday through wednesday like four to seven this coming yes. monday through so um the 17th 18th and 19th mm-hmm. okay all right uh well then well, i can monday if things. i well monday i have the day off so mm-hmm. maybe i'll do it earlier mm-hmm. but i'm Gonna get back into the Red Dead Redemption 2 storyline, and then maybe do mm. L.A. Noir because I've been wanting to play that game. Okay. But I don't, also don't want people to be like, oh, you've been playing this game for so long, and I and got into the story. It. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, I really want to try L.A. Noir, and I've never played it before, so we'll all be experiencing it together. Gotcha. Does it take place in the 40s? Like I believe 40s it's like. Thirties or forties, one of the two. Mm, like might, old Hollywood. That might be sort of relevant to today's topic. Oh, uh-huh, little that? hint. Um, we also are trying to figure out the best way to get our schedule back on track for streaming too. Yeah. We may or may not be streaming tonight, or uh, yeah, streaming tonight. I'll yeah, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Live reacting. Yes. <laughs> um. Uh. If anyone has noticed, tax season Raquel has not come out. Yeah, to play. she's she's disappeared. She's gone and lost forever. Yes. Her soul is still out there. <laughs> yes, but could her, always come back. Her physical body has has left the earth. <laughs> yes, um, I'm very much enjoying my new job and not being in the middle of tax season. So am I. Mm-hmm. I'm enjoying you not being in the middle of I tax know, season. Right? It's it was. It's such shit. Mm-hmm. Ugh, ugh. It's grand. It's awful. <laughs> um, I just watched, or, well, I rewatched season one and watched season two for the first time of Cheer. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like they sort of know what I went through because they were grinding it out the whole spring to all for Daytona, which is around the same time as tax season ends. So getting dropped like, yeah. on their heads. Fucking yeah, oh my God. Getting dropped on their elbows. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Hitting their heads, like accidentally like punching each other in the face. Yeah. Like, with a fall through or oh, concussions. Like yeah. There was a lot of vomiting in season two. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty like... I would almost, hardcore. I would say cheer is like a violent sport. It is. Yeah. Not intentionally violent. No. But um, like <clears throat> those baskets where they're throwing people is really dangerous. It's a physical sport. That's really for dangerous. damn sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would not. Uh, I played probably two of the most physical sports you can play. Football and hockey. Yeah. Right? And there's mm-hmm. other stuff like rugby. Oh, yeah. But I haven't played lacrosse. Mm-hmm. But, you know, hockey and football yeah, are, up are up there. Mm-hmm. There's no fucking way I would do cheer. There's yeah. just, there's no way. Well, there's I'm like, no padding for one thing. And it's all, like, if somebody is off by yep. a half a second, mm-hmm. that's all it takes. Yep. 
catastrophic injury potentially. Yeah. yeah, fuck that. Like it's it's like you don't have control. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing. And, once and when you're... when you're playing football and mm-hmm. hockey, yeah. you have control to an extent. Mm-hmm. You're, you're controlling what you're doing, right? But you can't control what you're doing for the most part when you're being thrown up in the air by other people. Yes, <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. who ha- are like, also having to catch you. You are depending on somebody else to catch you. Like they you're go not going to, yeah, so high. you're not going to land on your feet from twenty feet in the air. No, like you're just not. You no. you break an. That's ankle. why you get caught instead <laughs> of yeah. That's why you hopefully get caught. Yes, <laughs> you don't always. Yes, and I'm yeah. Thumbs down. It's a no. It's a no. From, it's, it's a, a no, no for me. me. <laughs> Fuck that. There's no way. So like that first yeah. season, I was just like, I know this it's is hardcore. some fucking dangerous shit. Mm-hmm. I was like, there's no way I'd ever do this. Season two is really interesting because there it starts with them. Per, spoiler alert, just in case, but it starts with them preparing for. Uh, Daytona for April 2020, and we all know how yeah. it's going to end up. But they're so hopeful, you know? There is no spoon. <laughs> is that from Matrix? It is. Okay. From the very first one. But okay. it's like it's like we all know that Daytona 2020 never happened. Didn't happen, yeah. Yeah. It existed. Uh-huh. The city of Daytona existed in the right, year 2020. Right, Just but, not the but this cheerleading championship. did not yeah. exist. It's, it's so funny. I was talking with my parents the other night, and like, it's kind of hard to remember life before the pandemic now yeah because it it's been two years. two years and almost exactly yeah it's well in two months for, in some two, places yeah. it's definitely been two years in the u.s yeah it was around march of 20 ugh, God, it was yeah. first discovered about two years ago this time it was first discovered remember, in 2019 that's why it's called covid but i remember getting some traction mm. like in mid-january as a problem as like a yeah. oh, mm-hmm. let's keep an eye on this yeah. Or with or with our situation, like, oh, let's not get, get into, into that this. just yet. Even though we know like, how bad like, it is. Let's not worry about it. We, we don't want to interrupt commerce. Oh, Jesus Christ. I we'll mean, be it... talking about capitalism today, just just for... Uh, we'll, we'll be getting into Keynes and Friedman today, so, oh. yeah, this is going to be a fun this, one. I don't know. Some of our listeners will be excited. <laughs> um, uh, real quick, I wanted to... Not, it's not so much a correction, it's just more information came to light. We talked about the kid in Connecticut who got killed in a freak accident mm-hmm. in Rocky last week. Turns out, according to his parents, he was not, he had not fallen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he was upright Skating and low. low. Which yeah. I'm trying to... Not sure what that means, but that it, it was still just a freak accident that the other player's leg went up something anyway horrible but i just wanted to like clarify that apparently more information came out fortunately the parents made a very gracious statement about like they understand it's nobody's fault hopefully yeah. the kid that was involved in the accident who who accidentally cut um the other kid is getting whatever help they need for getting over that well not getting over that but getting beyond that i guess yeah because i don't think you get over stuff like probably that. not yeah but hopefully you move on from it so yeah. anyway do we have a more depressing topic <laughs> well first we're drinking because I'm, I'm drinking non-swill yes i'm also drinking non-swill <laughs> what, what are you drinking i am drinking oh oh you're it's right i i forgot yeah i'm drinking full steams coffee is for closers mm-hmm. one of my favorite probably my favorite coffee beer 
It's a good one. I Which, just I know that sounds probably disgusting to some people. Oh, no. Coffee porters and stuff are excellent. This one's really good. I know. I miss it because I've discovered it has lactose. Mm. So um, I am drinking Bad Penny Brown Ale from Big Boss. Yes. Sure. It's probably going to taste pretty bitter compared to the coffees for closers. It's a brown ale. Browns yeah. can be tricky, and I know you're not a huge fan. See, I used to like brown ales, yeah. and then somewhere along the way, they got a little, I don't They're know. They're a little bitter. Sidetracked. They can be a little bitter. Um, but I don't know. I like it. And that was Beer Corner. That was Beer Corner, yes. So, we do have a depressing topic, but it, of course, because this is yes. all bad things, but it's also very interesting. And the reason I picked it is because its anniversary is on your birthday, Hmm. which we're recording this a couple days before, but it's on January 16th, and its 80th anniversary is on January 16th. So this occurred January 16th. 1942. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And I gave you some hints. Hollywood. Yeah. um, I'm not sure you know of this one. Does this have something to do with maybe, because it's 1942, Mm -hmm. so... We're full on in, in the uh, January. January, that's 42. true. We're Pearl Harbor had just in, happened, like six weeks earlier. Yeah, but we're in World War Two, yes, so I'm are. thinking if this also takes place in Hollywood, was there some sort sort of uh, like Hollywood propaganda shoot accident? <laughs> that's because a they, good guess. Because they did those propaganda. <laughs> we're films. gonna get into that a little okay. bit. Not the not the. That sort of tragedy, but in sort like of like I'm the not cheering for it, but you know what I mean. No, I do know what you mean. But um, so no, this is actually we're getting back to a good old what give the people what they want a good old air incident. This is the story of TWA Flight Three and the death of Carol Lombard. Oh, do you know who Carol Lombard is? I know the name. Was she an actress? Yes. We'll get into her, obviously, but so... I know she's been referenced in movies that mm-hmm. I've seen. Now I'm trying to remember those movies. Gotcha. So on January 16th, 1942, TWA Fla- Flight 3 crashed outside of Las Vegas, killing all 22 people on board, including movie star Carol Lombard. So she's yet another famous person who died in a plane crash. There's a lot of those. <laughs> another... Well, not necessarily... I mean, famous person, that's one thing. That's the larger thing. Oh, she's a movie star. She was a movie star. There are plenty of Hollywood stars that Mm -hmm. have died unceremoniously, and it's just... Well, or suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just... Absolutely. It's weird. It is weird. Uh, I mean, it happens to lots of people. Sure. It's just we note it when it happens to a celebrity, right? Yeah. So primary sources were the Civil Aeronautics Board report of this incident, The Hollywood Reporter, Lost Flights, My Star 95, Reddit, Explain It Like I'm 5, Studio Binder, Time Magazine, Variety, and Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. So I initially picked this topic because of Carol Lombard being famous, and I almost called it the death of Carol Lombard, but this was 22 people. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just like her in a pilot right. or something. Um and the flight itself is really interesting and terrible, uh, but it suffers from what, and I am likely not the first person to come up with this, but what I'm going to call the Kobe Bryant effect. Do you know what I mean by that? Could you guess what I mean by that? Not necessarily. What do you mean? So remember when Kobe Bryant mm-hmm. died? Well, it was it's almost, almost exactly two years. It's almost hard to remember because it happened right before the Just pandemic, before. and it was huge news, and then it was it left yeah. because. Anything that happened right before the pandemic, nobody is thinking about anymore, right? But um, but remember, 
like, because it was a huge fucking deal, because he was really young and everything. Um, but then people started to be like, well, it kind of sucks that we just keep saying Kobe Bryant. His daughter also mm-hmm. died. These other families also mm-hmm. died. And it was kind of like, uh, at least in social media and stuff, people were reckoning with the idea that when a celebrity dies in a mass casualty incident, that it's not just the celebrity who should yeah. be remembered for it. So this, that's why I was like, this could just be called the death of Carol Lombard, but, but then that not. would be sort of doing the Kobe Bryant effect, yeah. right? So um, anyway, so, but now because I said that, I'm going to go completely into Carol Lombard because <laughs> her being the most notable person on that flight or most famous and most information about her life available, right? So... And in 1942, being famous was being famous. Mm-hmm. You were like one of like 20 people. There are no social influencers. No. You were literally or... like one of 20 people in the whole yep. country that is famous. You're not going to be YouTube famous no. or Instagram famous. Like, yeah, you're up there. Yeah. Yes. You're, you're like you're like one thousandth of a thousandth of one percent of a percent of a thousand. Yes. Like it's mm-hmm. like beyond one the one percent. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Carol Lombard was actually born Jane Alice Peters on October 6th, 1908. Jane Alice would have worked, but Carol Lombard they, You is know what they didn't in the past... Jane Peters, no. You know how many people, like, now use their middle name as their mm-hmm. last as name? As their last name, So, yeah. Jane Alice may have worked, yeah. but they didn't do that back then. They just completely changed their names. I don't know. And we'll get into her name change. But she was born on October 6th, 1908. So, she was uh, 33 at the time of her death. She's born in Fort Wayne, Indiana, to a wealthy family. Her mother, Bessie Knight Peters, was the granddaughter of one of the men who financed the first transatlantic cable system. So she's from old money. (laughs) I wonder where all the money came from. Yeah. Uh, Damn, and I bet that family still has money. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. (laughs) Um, In 1913... uh, and this is going to need to be another topic of ours, huge swaths of the eastern and Midwest U.S. flooded in the Great Flood of 1913. So we need to do an episode on that. Uh, Bessie helped organize a logistical response to evacuate uh, and house those who were left homeless. And that left a big impression on young Jane. So her parents' marriage deteriorated, and Bessie decided to move out with to L.A. with her three kids. So um, Jane, at the time, and her two brothers in 1914. Jane was really athletic as a kid, uh, big into sports, and ended up being one of those... So there's like a trope from the 30s and 40s about like kid... or starlets being discovered like sitting at the soda fountain and that sort of thing and she kind of was one of those people she was discovered this is when, kind of when it began maybe well I, I mean i think it was just kind of the way things worked at the sure. time but she was sort of discovered at age 12 by a the director by the films by alan dwan a director who saw her playing baseball as a kid liked her and then cast her in a small role, and she was only 12, in the 1921 film A Perfect Crime. And as she started getting into acting, at first she was persuaded to change her first name. And literally 21 years later is when this mm-hmm. tragedy happens. 
That's true. So she was first persuaded to change her first name. Jane is a pretty, especially back then, common name. So uh, she decided to change it to Carol. I'm not sure that Carol is hugely better. I was going to say, that's, that's, a, you know. <laughs> that's, like a, that's like Jane adjacent. Right? Carol. It is Jane adjacent. But it's Carol with an E at the end. Uh, like um, Carol. Carol King. Uh, mm-hmm. Carol. <laughs> um, and then she eventually became Carol Lombard. Uh, both her first name and her last name were taken by f- from like people she knew, friends oh, she knew. Okay. So, and Carol Lombard is a good name. Like it's, it's a good... better than uh, Jane mm-hmm. Peters. Yeah, well, for for notoriety or yeah. for like name recognition, yeah. right? So this is a picture of a young Carol Lombard. Okay, in cute little bombshell pose, yes. sort of uh, swoop of the hair and the mm-hmm. one eye showing. And here is the full-blown 1930s glam shot of Carol Lombard. Damn. Very pretty. Very yeah. striking. Mm-hmm. Very gla- Hollywood glam of the time, right? Yeah. You can kind of tell why she's famous. Mm-hmm. Um, so Carol's career took a little while to take off, and this is the early Hollywood studio system, right? Oh, I, I can... I can only imagine how disgusting. I know. The casting couch shit and all that stuff. I know. (laughs) She actually gained a really good reputation in Hollywood for being really easygoing, really, like, likable. Everyone got along with her. But, um, so, in the studio, what do you know about the early Hollywood studio system? I didn't know a ton, but I I found out some more. I don't know a ton either. What I have come to know through like certain podcast episodes and certain like things like that is like in this time, it was literally run by like fucking criminals because they were the only people that could put up the funding. It's like the the um, like the early mob and fucking the horse head in the bed. Yes, (laughs) like there were only there were only certain people like I want to make a an epic you know budget movie a big picture how, how much do you need three million million dollars right who's gonna put up that money mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know that's only yeah. that's only a handful of people yeah what or, I, or organizations or one of the other right you know what i always associate the hollywood studio system with is that actors were under contract Oh, and get, and get in the studios, and usually getting fucked out of their contracts. Yes, just like today. Yes, just like how it's always. And been. that's part of it, but kind of, basically, like the old studio system was like you signed on for like a ten picture deal. Yes, with a studio or years. Yes, in in years, mm-hmm. right? And they controlled everybody. Everything. They control directors. Still they do. control well, not on this contract system. Sure. There are unions, and there are that's true agents and managers and stuff they had at the much time. more control in this a lot time. more control that's correct um and there were like five studios that each had their piece of the pie mm-hmm. right and they controlled everybody from the actors to the directors to the crew directors of uh, dps yep um, so they were salaried yeah. they were not like making x ex- they didn't couldn't negotiate picture by picture right mm. they were just making some flat fee. that's true because at this point they are literally just churning out mm-hmm. movies like non-stop they yeah they took the henry ford yeah model just keep making of movies. assembly lines yes. yep and they just pumped out these because pictures. i believe the decade of the 1940s was uh the most profitable decade in movie history period well the war helped that a yes lot. <laughs> it did and but, then yeah. mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. when during the, golden, the war the early golden era yes of movies, and then yeah. a, and then mm-hmm. after the war was done like 
you just went to the movies on Friday and Saturday. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. that's Because you didn't have a TV yeah. in 1947. Mm-hmm. Well, and even, you know, I was talking to my parents and they were talking about how even when TV was a thing... There wasn't movies on TV for a no, long time. No, not for a long time. Mm-hmm. Not so for about still fifteen or twenty years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is before. And then finally, and, like the and TV in its earliest days, all it is is you're watching radio. Basically, yes, because yeah. they hadn't quite figured out the medium quite yet. So they they literally just broadcast what a radio. Well, performance would be like very early, because, yes. yes. But then there was like the honeymooners. And there I was. Love Lucy was hugely influential. TV and they... eventually realize like oh no we're something different we don't have to do it the same way radio right. does right and now i mean like we're really spoiled for choice in what we get Infinite. in tv it's it's pretty bonkers yeah. but um for just entertainment period you have an yes. infinite amount of choices yes you're right um so these studios also controlled distribution completely oh, what they course. would do is they would sell packages of their films to independent theaters they called them book block booking and so they'd be like okay here's our ben-hur right like our huge movie but you also have to show these other three duds still do that today yeah i mean yeah. oh yeah i mean and they own some of the chains now too so but yeah that's normal i mean Mm -hmm. um and carol worked a bunch in this studio system era but like initially mostly in like bit roles Mm -hmm. uh but she started becoming she had a chance to work on her comedic skills and she became known as kind of like a good comic actress, especially in the screwball comedies of the time. Okay. Like like the early physical comedies. Yeah. And especially like during the depression, it was sort of the counter programming sure. to real life. Um, then in 1930, she signed a seven year contract with Paramount studios and she started like banging out movies five of her movies were released in 1931 alone so this is like really pumping that just shows you right there that they're just churning them out Mm -hmm. she was cast in a couple of movies alongside paramount's like biggest male star william powell who uh very typical of hollywood as we mentioned in the grace kelly episode was 16 years older than carol they'd they'd uh hey that's actually that's actually an improvement (laughs) right oh he's not 25 years older (laughs) yes they cast like these 20 year olds alongside 50 year olds we got you somebody who's less than 20 years older than you like what else do you want us to do should you be grateful yeah um uh, but apparently the age difference didn't really matter to Carol and William because they got married in 1931. Uh, she was 22. He was 38. Uh, the marriage was actually really good for her career, helped her star sure. rise. Because he was a high profile actor at the time. Um, and here is a picture of them together. So that's <laughs> William Powell and Carol Lombard. Look at that stash. I know. <laughs> Well, doesn't she look so typical of like the like of the a Gibson early days. girl or something? Yes. Almost she looks like, like the, the flapper, um, late flapper sort of. Yeah, era. and like the vaudeville kind of style. Yeah, was still kind the, of the the wavy slicked hair and yeah. the teeny teeny eyebrows. The that thing were drawn is, on. the thing is, she has like a chiseled face. Like that's her. I like actually think the, she has a really soft face, but the lines are good. Yes. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's always hard to tell in black and white too, but yeah. Sometimes it's easier. I don't know. That's fair. Uh, so their marriage didn't last long, like just over two years. But they that's, had... that's long for Hollywood standards. <laughs> yeah. That's like sixteen years. 
But they did stay friends, actually. And they even starred together in My Man Godfrey in 1936. So, uh, Carol actually had an early brush with tragedy in 1934. So she was divorced from William Powell at that point, And she was very much into a new relationship. Um, this time with Italian-American musician and actor and person her age, Russ Columbo. Great name. It is a great name. <laughs> Russ yeah. Columbo. So this is Russ Columbo and Carol. Much better. Yeah, that's an upgrade. <laughs> I, I kind of agree. Yes, definitely an upgrade. <laughs> they look like a cute that, 1930s That dude's couple. got a chin. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he was a very talented musician. Yeah. So he was a great singer. And he had a he had a good career going. He's got he's got the chiseled jawline, just just yeah. like just like I still do. <laughs> I love your jawline. <laughs> it's, it's not chiseled anymore. Aw, <laughs> you're a handsome devil, you. No, oh, thank you. Um, in September of 1934, Russ was at the home of his friend, photographer Lansing Brown, who was an avid gun collector. They were looking over Brown's collection of guns. On like his okay. dining room table or something. Nefarious going to happen? Well, this is what happened according to Brown. Quote, I was absentmindedly fooling around with one of the guns. It was that that alone. That's right? just yeah. That's... It was of a dueling design with a cap and trigger. I was pulling back the trigger and clicking it time after time. I had a match in my hand. And when I clicked, apparently the match caught in between the hammer and the firing pin. There was an explosion. Rush slid to the side of his chair, end quote. So basically what happened is the bullet ricocheted off the Mm -hmm. table, hit him above the left eye. Mm Mm-hmm. And he died about six hours later in the hospital. So it's just a, um, and by all, like it, it, by all accounts, it was a freak accident. Yes. And not, not nefarious. Um, and understandably, Brown never really emotionally recovered from that. How do you recover yeah. from accidentally killing your friends? Yeah. That's not... Mm. Well, that poor kid in Connecticut is kind of dealing with that, too. Except not in... Not quite Not like the same, this. Right? Not, not like this at all. <laughs> no, yeah. there was no... A little no bit of a difference. No fooling around with firearms, yeah. but still. Um, so... Despite this tragedy, Carol's career continued its upward trajectory throughout the 30s, and she continued to star alongside some of Hollywood's biggest male stars. Are you ready for for some names? Yes, I am. Including Charles Lawton, Fred McMurray, Cary Grant, George Raft. Nope. Who's famous for playing gangsters, I think. Bing Crosby. No, that one. John Barrymore. No, that one. And Clark Gable. No, that one. John Barrymore is Drew's grandfather. I think so. Yes. Drew Barrymore. Is, she's from like Hollywood yes, royalty. She's, she yes, she is. Long and her father lineage. is also John oh, Barrymore. Goodness. Like a I junior. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, she's. I just know her grandfather. She's Hollywood famous. lineage. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. she is. This is her grandfather. Yes, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, though Carol would initially say that she and Clark Gable had no personal chemistry when they starred in No Man of Her Own together in 1932. They went on to start a relationship four years later, regardless of the fact that Gable was on his second marriage to one Rhea Langham. In 1937, Carol's contract with Paramount ended. She became an independent performer. And in 1939, 13 days after Clark Gable's divorce from Rhea Langham, Carol and Clark Gable got married nice. while he was on a production break from shooting Gone with the Wind. Oh, mm-hmm. how about it? I 
Do not. Frankly, my dear, don't give a damn. This guy it was like a Hollywood Lothario, and I don't see it in this man at all. <laughs> I do not see the appeal. Like I, one, you know what? It's bit. it's probably it's probably the vibe he puts out, like which you probably can't capture they in a call, photo. So apparently, know? at the time, they were calling him like the ultimate masculine man, and I'm like, no, <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, I don't know. Everything is different in this time. It is. Like, it is. Literally it's, everything is different. It's a very different. different time. Yes. This is 80 years ago. Yeah. 80 plus years ago. Like what they meant by like American masculine was like, oh, he can also like fix a car. <laughs> Which like in 1937, <laughs> like deal. that's that's pretty, that's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. So this know? is 1939. My grandmother is one year old. Just like yeah. for context. This is a very long time ago. So um, the couple was also very opposite of each other politically. Uh, Clark Gable, and maybe this is also a vibe I got off him, uh, was a conservative Republican. So that's that's not sh- that's really not shocking. No, it's at all. not. And Carol, that's what Hollywood is, <laughs> just despite what they'll well, tell you. Well, Carol, the money handlers. Yeah, Carol was a liberal Democrat activist, sure. and she managed to talk Gable into voting for FDR and his New oh. Deal policies. Yep. Uh, her politics were very progressive. I would say even by today's standards, well, considering where we are now. Um, so she had this image of like small town girl made good, right? Cause mm-hmm. she came from the Midwest. Sure. She came from Fort Wayne, Indiana, like really worked her way to the top in Hollywood, but she advocated for the working class. And then here's where she gets real progressive. She strongly advocated and believed in High income taxation on the rich. Nice. Yes. And that included her. Sure. So by the late 30s, she was making... So she was willing to take a hit. She was making top dollars. So sure. she was making about $450,000 a year. That is a, that is a ridiculous amount Would you like to know what of, it is adjusted? Can I guess? Yes. I'm going to guess... Let's see, 10... Uh, I'm going to guess it's got up... So I'm going to guess that's about... 13 or 14 million today. Not quite. It's 8.7 million. Okay, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. But that's still good, Same right? Tonight. And I said that's I a said shit ton a of year, money. but it might have been a picture. I'm not sure. Think of what a house costs. Oh, I like, know. Like even a mansion like in 19 She could have bought a house whatever. today yeah. with that money. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. 80 years later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She probably had like an estate. <laughs> yeah right I mean, or maybe not? she didn't because oh, here's the thing true. so the revenue act of we're going to get a little bit into texas the revenue act of 1935 which was the same year that the social security act was brought into play right oh. so that's when social security tax started made the top income tax bracket do you want to guess what with the top income tax bracket was in 1935 i think it was like wasn't it like 90 it, like it did that? get that way at one point. It was seventy nine percent, which is still, for contrast, do you know what the top tax bracket is now? Like thirty eight, thirty seven. Yeah. Okay. You're you're right on. Less than half of that, right? Yeah. So seventy nine percent. Um. Uh. And uh, I People wrote. People still living large too. Oh yeah, and I wrote the initial cut to individual income tax came thanks to. Ronald Fuckface Reagan, Reagan yeah. yes. And we haven't been able to get back to anything close to that. Thanks, Ronnie. Yeah. He. F- uh, oh, Wall Street thanks him quite a bit. I'm so fucking glad that man is dead. Yes. He can rot in hell. Yes. I wish there was a hell so I could go watch Ronnie burn. See, that's the thing. Hell wouldn't be hell for me because I'd just be happy. <laughs> that Ronnie's burning. Yes. 
So um, Carol had no problem with this tax bracket. She said, she was quoted as saying, quote, this is amazing, quote, I get 13 cents on the dollar and I know it. So I don't figure that I've earned that dollar. I figure that I've earned 13 cents. And that's all right with me, too. We still don't starve in the picture business after we've divided with the government. Taxes go to build schools to maintain the public utilities we all use. So why not? End quote. Can you fucking imagine anybody saying that now who's rich? Nobody's saying that who's rich. Bill fucking Gates isn't saying that. Angelina fucking Jolie isn't saying that. That's really in fact, sh- really fucking progressive. In fact, there's a whole apparatus of mainstream media, meaning all of it, that will like placate to the rich and be like, no, they they should have like this, this, and that. Right. And they don't. That's like a whole industry in itself. Yeah. But can you imagine? Well, that's like I, really fucking progressive. When I, it's it's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. And when, and when I see like normal people like defending oh, certain things that the rich do, or being like. You know, taxation is theft. I'm like, I get what you're saying, but, you know, unless you want to build your own road, yes. like, by yourself, mm-hmm. set up your own, like, do all these things on go your own. Go off the grid, and I'll respect that. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, yeah that's fine. Mm-hmm. Like, if you go off the grid, mm-hmm. then, yeah, okay, no taxes, because you're not using anything that... Right. But unless that's happening... Which... <laughs> which it's <is> not. not. <laughs> And the people who try to do it end up, like, going, creating murder tanks and, yeah. and shooting people and shit, yeah. so. Or cults. Going, yeah, either cults or Ruby fucking Ridge, you know? Oh, my goodness. So, her attitude <laughs> earned her a commendation from FDR himself, and she became friends with him and visited him in the Oval Office. Very nice. Oh, uh, oh, I'll get back to that one, but yes. So, here's a picture of Carol talking to FDR. And this would have been smack in the middle of the Depression, too. Uh, yes, it sure would have. Mm-hmm. It sure would have. When it was mm-hmm. when it hit the hardest. Because yep. those first couple of years were, that's when people really struggled. And that's the thing that gets me about Carol is she was like, and we'll, we'll see this later. She's like, we all pull together. Hmm? Like, because that's, that's, maybe I should talk about that later. But I believe civic pride is like the thing that's missing out of our, quote, patriotism. So, Agreed. Anyway. Okay. So it's thought that a big part of her magnanimous attitude came from the fact that reportedly she was of the Baha'i faith, um, which is a belief system that she shared with her mother, Bessie. So from what I can tell, and this is what came from ELI 5, um, and apologies to anyone who is adherent to the Baha'i faith, it is a monotheistic religion, meaning they believe in a God and they believe in one God, but they basically believe like he created the world and then said, okay, see ya. And they believe... You're on your own now. Yeah, they believe in a very inclusive world. Basically, they believe in uh, life is all about peace and harmony, eliminating prejudice, everybody is equal. I'm like, I can... can, I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that. I mean, I'm cool with all of it, except for, I mean, the peace part's a bit of a stretch. Like, yeah. Well, no, they believe in promoting peace, is what I'm saying. I believe in promoting peace. Sure. If possible. Yeah. Some people make it not so possible. But, so that that seems really progressive, and even, like, being of the Baha'i faith seems really progressive. Yeah. For, but it's also Hollywood. You know, people are a little more creative and willing to think outside the box. Sure. Um, to put it nicely, some people are really fucking weird in Hollywood, too. But Most people. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, 
the more creative you are, I believe, like, mm-hmm. like tends kinda, to work out that kinda way. Kind of the right? more fucked up you are. I mean, well, I've, I don't know. If fucked up's the right thing. More, you're. I think you, you tend to be more open to different things, and some of it's weird. Yeah, and some people end up in weird stuff. Yeah, yeah. I would say not even some. Well. But, you know, but I, I we, know we, we know what I'm saying. Yes. So in the latter part of her career, which, remember, she wasn't very old at that no. point, right? Because she didn't live that long. Um, Carol started turning to more serious roles, uh, but came to realize her strong association with comedy kind of limited her in that respect commercially. So she went back to comedies. One of her last movies was Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Nothing to do with the Brad, the Brad Pitt, Pitt, Angelina the, Jolie the, movie. The Angelina. Yep. It was actually a Hitchcock comedy co-starring Robert Montgomery. And I did say Alfred Hitchcock comedy. Mm. It was basically the only comedy he ever did. But he also had comic elements. Oh, he has black comedy in, in everything. His, in all of his movies. Oh, yes. Well, we watched um, Rear Window. Oh, yeah. That one was hilarious yeah, in some a lot spots. of funny moments. Mm-hmm. But this was like, this one was not a suspense film. I saw it. It, it was, comedy. yeah. Okay. Um... And allegedly, he did it as a favor to her because he liked her so much. But then there was also reports that, no, he wanted to do the movie anyway. But her final role was in a comedy called To Be or Not To Be. And that was released about a month after her death. Uh, So here's the thing. Given the time frame, this film suffered from a little bit of timing problem, right? So it was released in February of 1942, right? Okay. They... They finished wrapping it in December 1941. Mm. The premise of this film is it's a satirical comedy about Nazis invading Poland. <laughs> so that's a hard sell post Pearl Harbor, just maybe a, to American a, just, audiences. Just a, you know, tad, just a little. A little bit. Um, the movie co starred Jack Benny oh. and I'm Robert Stuck. Really? Yeah, wow. he was he was He's in that the fucking old. Oh yeah, he was like eighty when he did the original um, uh, Unsolved airplane? Mysteries. He was pretty old in Airplane, I think, too. No shit, mm-hmm. I didn't realize. Oh, I, wow, I didn't realize that he was a holdover from like the early nineteen forties. Oh yeah, he was in the Untouchables TV series in the sixties, and he was even in like his fifties. That I want to say Airplane came out in nineteen eighty. Mm. It was either 79 or 80. I think he was born in like the 1900s or early 1910s. Jesus Christ, yeah. right? So he yeah. was old as fuck then. Well, Carol but... Lombard was born in 1908 and he was probably a contemporary. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. That's, oh, that's... He's a... He was ancient. I don't think of him as that old though. I know. Good, <laughs> good ma- dye job. Good makeup, good lighting, <laughs> good camera angles. Like he had it all down. Mm-hmm. So while... While the film To Be or Not To Be is now relatively appreciated by critics, it was not so much to some critics then, and certainly not to audiences who thought it was in bad taste, to release a movie satirizing Nazis six, or like th- two, three months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. This is just a little poor timing. It might have fallen flat a little, a little bit, bit <laughs> since everybody was literally about to fight Nazis. Yeah. So, um, at this point, it is pretty important to keep that timeline in mind. In mind. So, the, the crash happened on January 16th, 1942. That is just about six weeks shy, or sorry, just shy of six weeks after Pearl Harbor. 
Um, and just to put this into context, I mean, this is my impression of Pearl Harbor that until 9-11, until September 11th, that was like the biggest affront on, mm-hmm. quote, American soil. Yeah. Now, to be clear, this happened in Hawaii, not. right? Well, it, it, it was a U.S. territory. It was. So, quote, U.S. soil, right? And Hawaii is now a state. So, anyway. Um, uh, of course, it was home to Pearl Harbor on the island of Oahu, a U.S. naval base. Uh, so, very soon after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the day that will live in infamy, as mm-hmm. FDR says, Hollywood started um, a very famous campaign to contribute to the war effort. Oh, hell yeah. Which included advertising mm-hmm. war bonds, entertaining the troops, starring in recruitment films, propaganda, like you said. And, of course, some very famously enlisted or were drafted. Yeah. Right? And the reason we were doing it Mostly is, enlisted. is because the Germans were doing the same thing. Like we, we were, mm-hmm. we were not only in a physical altercation mm-hmm. with the Germans; we were in a propaganda war with yes. them too. Mm-hmm. Very true. So, just three days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the Hollywood Victory Committee was formed. I bet it was. <laughs> yes, in association with the Screen Actors Guild, uh, and Carol and Clark were in on the efforts too. In fact, Clark Gable served as the chair on the committee, as a, as a chair on the committee. Um, very interestingly, his Gone with the Wind co-star and first black actor or actress to win an Oscar, Hattie McDaniel, was the chair of the committees, and I am only quoting what it was called, their, quote, Negro division, end quote. It's the, It was the vernacular of the day. Um, on December 22nd, 1941, Gable called a meeting of the actors branch of the Victory Committee and it was held at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel on Rodeo Drive. Mm. And huge movie stars at the time, like Betty Davis, Gary Cooper, Cary Grant, Bob Hope, Charles Boyer, Myrna Loy, uh, attended and gre- agreed that they needed to help the war effort by visiting and entertaining troops, which started basically like the USO sort of I was just going to say, mm-hmm. yeah. And they started, their first entertainment effort was for Christmas that year. And remember, this is, the meeting is on December 22nd, so it must have happened like that. They started with a Christmas party that year, and Clark Gable served as the MC. And 1930s superstar, I'll bet you anything you don't know this name, Wallace Beery. Do not. (laughs) Played Santa Claus. Wallace Beery. Wallace Beery. (laughs) So at that. Smeals mainly. Yeah, Smeals mainly. Wallace Beery. Yes. So basically at the same time, that Christmas Eve, 1941, Carol wrapped her shoot on To Be or Not To Be, which must have been really surreal to make fun of Nazis right after all that. Um, That would be like, not quite because it was the Japanese who bombed Pearl Harbor, but still, can you imagine if somebody was making a satirical film about like Al-Qaeda when 9-11 Right or Saddam Hussein, even. yeah, you know, like somebody adjacent. Prob- somebody probably was, <laughs> and they just and they and they just it. stopped. They're like, mm-hmm. okay, uh, this is, I, I'll I'll definitely get a visit from the NSA yeah. if I continue <laughs> with this. So she herself was so firmly behind the war effort that she not only made sh- sh- uh, oh she not only made sure that Clark Gable was willing to serve himself in the armed forces. She reportedly called FDR herself and was like, make sure he sees action. <laughs> Which sounds weird. That, <laughs> Apparently uh, Clark Gable was all for it. So he may have even asked okay. her to do it. Well, so. that's, that's good. Yes. <laughs> he actually did become a bombardier 
in Europe. I think I did know yep. that, yes. And he eventually made the rank of major. Uh, Hitler was actually obsessed with him on a certain level. He, like, of all the stars, the American stars who served, he, he's like, he's I, like he's that like, one. He's like, I want to get bombed by that guy. No, no, no. He said he <laughs> offered a gigantic reward for anyone who could bring Clark Gable to him unscathed. For okay. what purpose? I'm uh, not sure. To play out film roles and probably, I mean, <laughs> probably. really. Probably. I mean, that's, I mean, that's probably what he would have done. It would have been like uh, the Stephen King movie. Oh, Misery. It would have been like Misery. Like, <laughs> for real. With like Hitler and Clark Gable. Yes. Oh, my God. That needs to be the yes. next alternate no, no. reality no. Tarantino film. If anybody, if I see that film in like two years, <laughs> I'm going to sue you. That's our idea. I'm claiming it right now. No, it's such a once upon a time in Hollywood type pitch to Tarantino. Be like, okay, so it's World War II and Hitler wants Clark Gable and he <laughs> and gets he, and him. He gets him. <laughs> and it turns into that Kathy is, Bates plays is, Hitler. Now does Clark stay because he, he can do whatever he wants with Hitler or does he become American again and try to take out Hitler? And oh, there's so many things you can do with that. It's an amazing premise. It, it really, is. really is. Oh boy, so... Now, at the time of Pearl Harbor, Clark Gable was under contract. He had to do one more movie for MGM, so he actually didn't immediately enlist. He finished out that film. That would have been how the movie ended. <laughs> right. He would have been like, I'm sorry, Hitler, I can't. I'm under, I'm under a picture I'm under contract, contract for one more. <laughs> like, you can't have me. <laughs> um... So that's what Clark was doing, but Carol was willing and able to immediately throw herself into the film uh, efforts, or sorry, into the war efforts. And here is a picture of her selling uh, war bonds. Mm-hmm. So let's talk talk about war bonds. What what are war bonds, David? It's essentially, from what I gather. Mm-hmm. It is selling bonds, like Mm -hmm. treasury bonds, to Mm -hmm. normal citizens that it's worth this today, but in 15 years it'll be worth this. Yes. It'll be worth more. Yes. And uh, we need to defeat Hitler. We can't let Clark Gable get in in Hitler's (laughs) mitts. Like, we just can't. So we literally need all of you to help us fund the war, which is... What people did. Yes. So basically, a bond is a debt instrument, meaning you're essentially making a loan to the federal government. Mm -hmm. Um, They still sell treasury bonds. You you can still buy them. The idea is you are guaranteed a specific rate of return depending on when you buy them. And you buy them now, the government uses that money, and you can cash them in later for a greater value. Yes. Um, My my great-grandmother bought me and my sister a whole bunch of bonds when we were little and we eventually cashed them out down the road but um get that sick three (laughs) percent well i mean it was all free money to us right Right? exactly like i think my grandmother bought like five hundred dollars worth and i cashed them out for a thousand or something that's that's pretty good it was the 80s i don't know pretty good but um so the u.s had used war bonds during world war one and by yes. 1940, things are heating up in Europe. The federal government knew it's what. They're like, this could end up being inevitable that we are uh, getting they involved in this knew. war. They're like, right. They're like, it's going to happen eventually. So their first thought, of course, is how are we going to afford this? And they had kind of two options. Yes, they could sell war bonds just like they did in World War One, 
Or they could also raise income taxes or both, or, you know, some version of both. Now, FDR's advisors were more keen on raising taxes, and that was advocated by highly influential early 20th century economist John Maynard Keynes. Okay, yes. A Keynesian economics, if you've ever heard of that. So uh, Keynes had been the primary influence on FDR's New Deal policies. So to very much overly simplify Keynesian economics, the idea is that when the economy is doing well, the government should save money. When it's in a depression or a recession, it should spend spend it to help people, assist people. That lasted all the way until Reagan. So here is exactly what I wrote. Side note, Keynesian economics would give way in the latter part of the 20th century thanks to Ronald Reagan and his penchant for one. <laughs> for who? Um, hang on, hang oh, on. Oh, yeah, you Isn't know the this Nobel one. Prize winner? I think so. Um, God. The guy, your cousin's husband. I, yes. <laughs> Why can't I think of his name? Mis- misnamed, even. <laughs> who is it? Milton Friedman. That's right. You watch that whole... Yes. Yeah. Uh, Friedman's a fuck face too and oh, he's, he's dead he's, he's so horrible. yay he's yay that he's also burning like, in hell I watched that whole thing mostly home. because I wanted to get to know I'm like who is Milton Friedman oh he he's revealed, an asshole he revealed who he was like in that hour of on the it was the Donahue show it was from like 1979 yeah. I'm like wow like he doesn't believe you should spend any money <laughs> he, except on the military I'm like where have I heard that That's for the last 40 years? He basically, he and then Reagan adopting his policies. Yeah. Oh, and they we're say We're still it. fucking, this is the corrupt system we're yes, living in. Yes, they, they say it in the, in the interview. And they're like, mm-hmm. like, and Ronald Reagan's thought of bringing you on as, as a policy Jesus advisor. Christ. And it was just like, like, this is the moment. That like, we got like, screwed. Like, like, it's right here. This is why everything that's <laughs> happening now, it's like, it, it, it's like watching it. No! Yes. It's, if you could go back and kill it's, baby it's Milton if, Friedman, it's that'd if, be a great idea. It's if you were the builder of the Matrix and you're watching uh, Neo and Trinity shake hands for the first time in a lot, <laughs> and all that powers, you're like, no! <laughs> like, that's what this fucking economist yeah. teaming up with... Motherfuckers. I know. So he I, believed I hate, I hate in them all so much. Essentially lazy fare. And you know what? Our, our government our government has been these people ever since. Just with a new I name. Know. Meet know, the old new, boss. Or meet the new boss, same as the old Jesus. boss. Like it's just it's tragic. So literally this man's idea were that everything works out for the best if everybody just watches out for themselves. Yeah. Sunk the fucking world. Like, several times. I think... Uh, no, I was going to say something really... I'm just not even going to say that. Never mind. All right. Yeah, it was... Either way, fuck It was this trying guy. to decide whether I would kill baby Hitler Hon- or baby Friedman. But honest to God, <laughs> I encourage Both anybody to watch that. Just look up Milton Friedman on Donahue. Donahue. And it's like a 45-minute like long mm-hmm. interview, but it's... You just see it like, all. He's just He's literally laying out what the fucking United States would become. Like, he's laying it all out, and it's just like it fucking happened. And that's the sad thing. And that's what's killing us all right now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, yep. Because selfishness is better for everybody. Yeah. This is how it works. Yeah, for everybody. That's why it's called selfishness. <laughs> because it's about everybody. Yes. <laughs> everybody being just you. So I think I cut us off there just a little bit, just in case if anybody's okay. wondering why there was a hard stop. That's why we took our little break. But um, 
And I should have listened to where we were. Oh, we were ranting about Milton Friedman. Yes, yes. we were. That's right. So um, at any rate, in the end, the war bond argument <laughs> won out. Um, <laughs> that's how that, that's how the that's conversation how that started. <laughs> yes. And then we wound up with Milton Friedman. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, Jesse. Yeah, now he's going to want to get out, I'm sure. Oh, but uh, so Hollywood would end up being a huge advertising vehicle for citizens buying war bonds. Oh, yeah. Carol was like very much one of the first to hop on board that train. That's the whole like uh, origin story of Captain America as well. Really? Yes. He really? Yes. He I've never a... seen any of yeah. them. Yeah. The first Captain America is just a good movie, in my opinion. But he's so, originally like, okay. He goes through the whole transformation. They're like, "Oh, we need him to sell war bonds." Oh. And then, then eventually, it's like, "No, we need him to like fight the war." Oh, okay. Like so did he win World War Two in Marvel? He caught the Universe? big bad guy of World War Two. Hitler? No, somebody else. Mussolini? Uh, Skullface or something? Red face? <laughs> A Red fake Red... person? Well, yes. We're oh, talk- we're talking about the, an MCU oh. timeline. So not real people. No. Oh, I don't know. So he real events, but you know, different. Okay. An alternate universe, if you will. Okay. With the okay. same things in it, here and there. I will still just say that I'm disappointed in myself that I find Chris Evans attractive. That's all. <laughs> Pasty white. I find him attractive. <laughs> Not usually my type, but he has a charisma, and he absolutely, totally should get with Lizzo. There's a whole like internet stand between like Lizzo and Chris Evans and it's pretty awesome I think they'd make an amazing couple they'd be interesting they'd be fucking awesome together anyway (laughs) um so striking while the iron was hot uh Carol started a tour of the country in early January so just a few weeks Mm -hmm. after Pearl Harbor like a month to stimulate bond sales she traveled by train to Salt Lake City and Chicago before going back to her home state of Indiana. Okay. So the Treasury Department had given her a sales goal, basically. I'm sure. Like of, a commission. Yeah. Well, like, no, she didn't get a commission, I'm pretty sure. This was like civic yeah. duty. But um So they're like, if you're worth your weight, <laughs> this you'll is what sell, she'll you'll get. sell this many. So their goal for her was a half a million dollars in oh, war I'm sure bonds. She nailed that. Which is about eight and a half million a day. She blew through yeah, that Yeah, I was goal. like, that's easy. She sold $2 million in <laughs> yeah. war bonds, which is $34 million today Again. in one day. Again. She sold that. You have to put it in context of she's one of 20 famous people right. in the world, in the whole world. She's a huge and, movie star. And she's showing up to your town or city mm-hmm. or not even town, city. Salt well, Lake City in Chicago. Well, and then Indiana. And yeah. that's the thing is that it was like, she's ours. She's our girl. Yeah. We, we made her. So We're going to buy like mm-hmm. fucking we'll whatever. We'll buy whatever she wants us to. Yeah. Yeah. And Easy. This is, this is also really early in the war. So like rationing and shit hasn't kicked in yet. So, Not fully. Yeah. It Things will. aren't as hard now as they're going to yeah. become. Yeah, people for... didn't realize like what an effort like this war would be mm-hmm. in January 1942. Right. She exhorted the crowds, quote, carry on, buy more bonds, more bonds, and more bonds until the war is won. Yep. So, after Indiana, Carol was supposed to continue her tour, but she decided to cut the trip short and go back to L.A. And there are theories as to why she did that, and one of the theories 
is that she was suspicious that Clark Gable was starting up an affair with his co-star, Lana Turner. That's pretty good suspicion. <laughs> I mean, he was married when they got together. There's that. And he's and, like... And uh, Lana Turner is a is a is like a background character in uh, the movie L.A. Confidential. Really? Well, yes. she was another famous star. Oh, yeah. Very famous Huge star. star. Um, and the other thing is like... Clark Gable is kind of a piece of shit, personally. <laughs> I think all men. Especially back then. I mean, really. like In general, but back then. <laughs> yeah, like especially back then. Because, uh, yeah. I don't know, that, that's, a, that's a whole of the diatribe. Well, but, we were so much more in the patriarchy than we even oh, are now. God, so, yeah. yeah. Like, I'm honestly was surprised terrible. she was making the money she was making. Right. I'm, I'm surprised Well, imagine that. what he was making. Yeah. Mm. Double. Probably. Oh, at least. At least. Yeah. So, um, at any rate, she was like, I need to get home and I need to get home now. So she wasn't... like, I'm going to get him. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. (laughs) But she didn't even want to take the train back, which which was the original plan. So she decided she wanted to fly home. That's... Yeah. Don't fly in 1942. (laughs) Unless you're... These are early-ish aviation days. Unless you're a pilot of your own plane. (laughs) That's the only time it's okay. Well, and even then, right? Um... So she ended up boarding Transcontinental and Western Air, or TWA, Flight 3. I didn't know that there was one in 1942. That TWA was was around? Yeah, apparently. I didn't know it stood for Transcontinental and Western Air. But apparently it does. So uh, she boarded it in Indianapolis en route from New York to California with her mother, Bessie, and her press agent, Otto Winkler. Mm. Uh, so... Well, we know their fates as well, no, don't well, we? Well, yes, we do. So this is Bessie with Clark and Carol. I blame it on Clark. It, well, I, I mean, not is... this particular thing. This is Bessie and her mother. I think this was either the morning of or the night before the flight. Okay. It's very... Yeah. Very soon. And here is the little um, route that TWA took. So it went from all, New York. All these I know. And look at that's all that TWA it's served. Like, these are like partner airlines. I know. It's like in 1942. Uh-huh. See here again. In 1942, you're treating the airline because it's a new thing. You're treating it like a bus stop. Yes. That's they stopped li- that's everywhere. Li- that's, that's literally what this looks like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and we can kind of uh, follow along there, but here is their itinerary. You can see how Look many stops that. they oh have. My God. Yeah. yeah, so it's they go literally from a bus. New York to Newark to Philly to and, Reading and to Harrisburg is, to Pittsburgh this is to when DC you, to Pittsburgh to you Columbia. Do not want to be Columbus. on a passenger plane. <laughs> no, this is early. And days. there's like fifty stops. There's so so many so many. Um, no, and no, thank you. I know the flight departed Indianapolis at five twenty-seven a.m. local time on Friday, January sixteenth, nineteen forty-two. Here is Carol boarding the plane. You're kidding me. That's the last picture of her. Because they were publicity photos. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of haunting. I know it is. It is, yeah. So the plane was a twin-engine Douglas DC-3 382 prop liner, Sick. meaning it was an airliner with propellers. Sick. Here is the plane on the Funny. day. <laughs> yeah. It's exactly what I had pictured. It looks it like looks, a little tiny. It looks like a tiny B fifty two bomber. Yeah, is what it looks of. like. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm sure, like, they had rocking chairs for seats. Oh, this was like the, um, this was, no, this was kind of, like, luxurious oh, for the time. Oh, everything, it, like, I didn't mm-hmm. realize there was literally, like, a civilian, like, passenger, I thought that came after right, World War II. Right, Yeah, no, apparently this was, like, this was a game changer for the airline uh, industry. Yeah. Some of them, I'm pretty sure not the model that they had, but some of them had berths, bunks. They were meant to replace train berths. That's crazy. Yeah, and be an alternative to riding That's the train. True, there was yeah. Because that was your only other option. Like they thought of it as the combination back then of a train and a bus. Yes, kind of. They didn't think of it yeah. as, as like no, this is a new thing. We don't need to stop fifty times. Right. Uh huh. Like you need to stop like at most twice. Right, and just have more flights. <laughs> yeah. So this plane was equipped for a maximum capacity of twenty-four passengers and four crew. So there were several, as we saw, several stops along the way. Several (laughs) being relative. (laughs) Yes. Most of which were relatively short, like baggage handling stuff. The longest layover layover was in St. Louis, Missouri, where bad weather caused a couple hours of delay. When the flight reached the stop... There's no... Like, can you imagine (laughs) flying in bad weather? There's no fucking... Like, I don't want to do it today. I know. In that tiny plane, too. I know. Fuck that. Well, at least they didn't fly in it, right? They they laid over. Um, (sighs) But, so when they reached the flight... uh, Or when the flight reached the stop in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Carol, Bessie, and Otto were asked to get off the plane. They had 15 Army Air Corpsmen who were supposed to board the flight. And they're like, we need to bump some people. We want to bump you. Carol pulled a little bit of a do you know who I am? And was like, I get that these guys are doing shit for the war, but did you know that I just sold $2 million in war bonds? And so they stay on the flight. Henceforth. (laughs) Yeah. This is one of those, like, you Mm. know the the coin flip for the day the music died? This is kind of one of those thing moments. As, uh, drawing a uh, drawing the ace of spades when yes. the Metallica was trying to figure out their bunk assignments mm-hmm. and that the sliding doors of what could getting happened. the ace of spades, which mm-hmm. is like the greatest card to get, literally cost somebody their life. Yeah, yeah, um, and unfortunately, this did for Carol, her mother, and her press agent. Um, so they ended up bumping other people, including a Hungarian violinist prodigy named Joseph Zagetti. So he actually, his life was saved by Carol Lombard. Um, So aside from the 15 airmen, Carol, Bessie, and Otto, uh, there was only one other passenger on the plane. It was another civilian named Lois Hamilton. That's crazy. So Mm -hmm. this was all servicemen that got... And then the crew, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the four civilians, yeah. So because of the time delay, the crew switched over in Albuquerque because the previous crew had reached their, like, length of how long they were allowed to go between, or how long they were allowed to fly before they required rest. So that's another thing that the the weather in Albuquerque Which I'm almost surprised things. they even had that requirement well, back then. Well, yes, I know. Uh, the new crew consisted of 41-year-old pilot Captain Wayne Williams, 25-year-old First Officer Morgan Gillette, and 25-year-old flight attendant, then known as an air hostess, Alice Getz. So Captain Williams had just over $12,000, 12000 hours of flying time under his belt. And they took off for a scheduled refueling stop in Winslow, Arizona. Ah. Which, you know what I immediately thought of? Uh, 
the yes. Eagles song. Yes. yes. I'm a standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. Lord, it's such a fine sight to see. It's a girl, my lord, in a flatbed forward, slowing down to take a look at me. Take it easy. easy. <laughs> That's like the most country song us. that I'm... Mo- yeah, one. well, jeez. He'll catch wind of this and be like, who are these people? <laughs> oh, yes. There's a great chance that Don Henley <laughs> Don will Henley. listen to our podcast. Yes. Um, can hi, you Don. Please, can you please promote it? Please do us. <laughs> yes. So, so we can have the money to cover your lawsuit. <laughs> While in flight, Captain Williams uh, requested permission that they not stop in Winslow and just keep going to Vegas. And that was allowed. Basically... Under certain conditions and weights, they would have needed to refuel, but he saw that they could make it through. So they went through to Vegas, and it was fine. They landed. Everything was okay. Um, So their last stop, or their last leg, was to go from Vegas to Burbank, California, which is in L.A., right? Um, So they took off from Vegas at 7.07 p.m. local time. Now, this is January, so early sunsets. Yeah. Yeah, it's dark. Very clear conditions, no problems, but it was basically no visible moon, so it was pretty dark. And then on top of that, um, there was a blackout in effect. And this is interesting. I don't know. Did you ever hear of U.S. blackouts? Yes. So, yeah. Especially during this time. Yes. So, my grandmother, again, who was born in 1938, remembers blackouts Mm -hmm. uh, during World War II, so it must have been a major thing. But yes, this was the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor had been bombed. Yep. So there was a lot of blackout. In the West effect. Coast was most likely to be bombed. Well, certainly this, this when Japan was the mm-hmm. primary concern, right? And then plus all the stuff you had going on in Las Vegas at the time. Like yeah. That's... Yeah, that's true. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, it's it, at that time, it's an easy way. Like nowadays, it wouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like you have... You have night vision and... Oh, yeah, but back then, that was a thing. Like, like Mm -hmm. you black out a city, it's like, Mm -hmm. you're not going to detect that from 10,000 feet in the air. And that was a major thing in in Europe, obviously, during World War II. There was a ton of blackouts. The air raid siren and then, yeah, blackouts. Yeah, that's why they eventually shifted to night bombing, is they were like, well, if they're going to black out their cities anyway... Like, we have a better chance yeah. of surviving at night, and we'll just drop bombs and... Wherever. They they land where they land. Mm -hmm. Um... Uh... Shameless plug for our friend Lee. Uh, he talks a lot about like bombardiers and air raids and blackouts in uh, So Others May Live mm-hmm. in his first novel. So. Sure. Uh, so it, uh, flight three was to fly at an altitude of 8,000 feet or about 2,400 meters. Okay. Pretty low, but it's also a small plane, That's also right? back in the yeah, day. Yeah, and back in the yeah. day. So around 15 minutes into the flight, and this is uh, just af- uh, just a little bit southwest of Vegas, um, and almost seven miles off course, TWA Flight 3 crashed into a nearly vertical cliff face mm-hmm. on Potosi Mountain, just southwest of Vegas. All 22 people on board were killed instantly, and the plane was destroyed. So, yeah. I was just going to say when you said Potosi. they went off course, I was like, did they hit a mountain? Because there's. Yep. Yes, they did. Uh, and like. There's quite a few of them in that right area. Right there, basically. Yeah. yeah like I remember flying directly. into Vegas. 
the ter- yes, the ter- it's in a valley. The terrain, yep, mm-hmm. which is like something I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting flying yes. into Vegas. Um, you ready for wreckage? Yeah, that's. I'm surprised any of it is still intact. Oh, it, it's pretty wild. Yes, there was, and a guy even visit like the um, Lost Flights website that I visited. This guy visited the site. In Jesus. the 80s okay. and found pieces of this plane. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Like he, he collected There's the bits of There's little shreds all over the fucking yeah. place. Like you can't. Oh, that's so sad. Mm-hmm. The, again, there's no silver linings, but no. like to look at suffering, it, it, they it almost certainly everybody just died. Like it was the, it's Mount Erebus, right? Mm-hmm. Just like bam. And all that was sudden. it. Mm-hmm. One minute you're, you're there, one minute you're not. So. Um, the crash was investigated by the Civil Aeronautics Board. Uh, the CAB went on to become a victim of early deregulation. It was dissolved in 1985. The NTSB took over air 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 accident investigations in 1967. So this is Mm -hmm. pre-NTSB investigating crashes. CAB investigators first got word of the accident around 11.15 p.m. that night, but because of travel and it being 1942, they didn't arrive yeah, until there's, after there's no, 24 hours later. <laughs> there's no interstate highway to jump on in <laughs> no, 1942. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. This is pre-Truman. So, yeah, it took them a long time to the, the CAB to, to get, get to the site. Yes. Um, but in the meantime... It would, it would still take a long time today. Look at where yeah, it is. It's it in is, the... Yeah, it's in a mountain range. And yeah. But the thing is, they didn't even have, like, local offices no. or satellite offices. They were coming from, like, D.C. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, in the meantime, a search party consisting of Clark County deputy sheriffs and U.S. Army personnel had been out searching they had they got word of the crash they're like let's go look for survivors well they found the wreckage Mm. around 9 a.m uh on january 17th okay now like i said the plane basically well okay so apparently the left wing clipped a ledge of the mountain but then like immediately after it hit just a wall yeah a literal wall so uh, the flying way too low. Well, so the point of impact was seven thousand seven hundred seventy feet, or about two thousand three hundred seventy meters above sea level, and about seven hundred thirty feet, or two hundred twenty-three meters from the top of the mountain. So even if they had been up at eight thousand feet, their flying altitudes, they still would have hit it. Yeah. So the search volunteers, uh, they they uh, poor people, they found a really kind of a violent scene. Uh, they found victims and victim remains, a lot of blood, personal effects, stuff like that. This is in a mountain range, Mm -hmm. right? And the train was really rugged. No helicopters were available. This is wartime. Because they, (laughs) and they also barely existed. Well, I, they did by World War II, right? Yes, but I'm saying barely. They weren't everywhere. And they were probably all deployed. And I was, I was going to say, it was all military. The police, the police didn't have helicopters in 1942. So the question becomes, how do you remove remains from the side of a mountain? Jesus Christ. They, and I have pictures, but they dragged. Yeah. The victims. Yeah. Um, There's no other way. Uh, well, first of all, here's the recovery crew working. 
the cool man with the sunglasses is very cool. But anyway. Um, and here's how, I mean, and you can see how steep this is and yeah. how hard they had to work. Yeah. Like, I actually really admire these recovery guys because they yeah. were doing not, some pretty hard they're work. They're not wearing fucking North Face gear. No. Like, they're this, like, North this, what? This dude's in overalls and like a freaking Henley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Huh. Yeah. So, um, uh, Clark, uh, so they were, they were dragging the victim's remains to the nearby community of Good Springs. That's, that's where they ended up. Clark Gable had traveled to Vegas once he heard, uh, along with MGM crisis manager, Eddie Mannix. Uh, and Clark Gable held on hope that maybe she survived, that Carol survived because they didn't know the details. Right. And they, and initially they were still looking for the wreckage to mm-hmm. begin with. So they thought maybe there were survivors, whatever. Um, then they got word of the crash site. And Mannix himself went to the crash site. Clark Gable did not go, fortunately, because that would have been horrible. Um, and he telegraphed Clark Gable back in Vegas saying, yeah, no, no, everybody died instantly. Um, Mannix tried to look for Carol's remains. All that he found, apparently he found a long blonde hair, which oh, given wow. the who was on board may have been mm-hmm. Carol's. Um, and he brought that back to Clark Gable. So her remains were never. I don't found? know. I the guess at I he he didn't find the remains. Gotcha. They were probably later identified, sure. but he didn't see them. Or maybe she had already been recovered by the search yeah. crew. Who knows? So the CAB investigation report released in July of 1942 found like the pilot and the first officer. They're physically competent, mentally competent, had their licenses, their certifications, were experienced the whole nine. So that was fine. The plane was fine mechanically, no mechanical issues. Um, and that, and they, that's the damage to the mountain showed the whole left wing clip. And then they went straight into the mountain. There was no downward trajectory. Mm-hmm. They were not falling. They straight on pretty mm-hmm. much. Um, they, the report noted like, okay, there were blackout conditions, uh, but even with blackout conditions, it was always a regulation that at least one beacon be lit. Because, mm-hmm. like, you can't just leave these pilots in the dark. You have to give them something so there would be a beacon lit. And uh, um, the, so, in, sorry, the, the CAB could not determine if, oh, no, that's not true. Hold on. I, I ended up negating myself later. Anyway, um, uh. It, it, regardless of there was one beacon lit, I'm going to get to that in a second. But regardless, they noted they're like you know, eight thousand. This this plane was off course, mm-hmm. but eight thousand feet in this terrain was not the right call in terms of altitude. Like it should have been higher, and Way TWA higher. should have should have known that and should have done that. Um. Also, witnesses noted. So here's here's another thing that really struck me. We live near an airport, right? Mm-hmm. And we see planes all the time. We can see them, well, everywhere in Raleigh, but we can see them even on our back deck, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because of how early in commercial aviation this is, yeah, like- people knew this plane flying this route. 
Sure. And they were like, oh, there's there's that plane today or there's that plane ne- the next week or whatever. And they knew its trajectory. So witnesses who saw this flight, flight three, were like, huh, look, it's going a little bit off to the northwest because it, there were so few planes mm. flying out of this. They it's knew crazy. this flight they knew path. The route. Yes. And the, the witnesses said, yeah, this was going northwest. This was going like off what we were used to seeing it go. Um, and that was consistent with the fact that the point of impact was 6.7 miles or like 10.8 kilometers off its flight path mm. to the northwest. And even though it was this far off, the plane was still technically within the limits of its airway. Again, so many fewer pl- planes. They're they're like routed within an inch of their lives now because there are so many. But back then, that was not necessarily the case. But the, that problem combined with the altitude. Mm-hmm. So the plane, first of all, it hadn't even reached 8,000 feet, right? It crashed at 7,770 and even if it had, it would not have been high enough to avoid that mountain, Potosi Mountain. Um, so the altitude problem was kind of like a systemic issue, right? Like, why didn't you tell them to go higher? Yeah. But then there was a big question mark. Why were they almost seven miles off course? So at the time, TWA had flight plans that were divided into sections. So almost like the one leg of the journey had like little mini segments or Mm. mini legs, right? And those legs would show on the flight path like an average course. So like, hey, you can go within this range, but here's like if you average out all the flights, here's approximately where it's going. And it was approximately a straight line, right? The shortest distance between two points. Um, So flight three's flight plan was prepared by the first officer, by Morgan Gillette. And he and the captain, Captain Williams, both had more experience flying out of Boulder City, Nevada, Mm. which is slightly to the southeast of Vegas, to Burbank, than they did from Vegas to Burbank. So they were both a little more familiar with that route. Um, It is theorized and appears that possibly... Gillette accidentally used the first segment of the Boulder City flight in his flight path to Va- to uh, Burbank out of Vegas. But then, like, it worked within that average so they could the rest of the flight worked out. Yeah. But just that initial leg went northwest instead of going southeast. And, and that, that could to... have been the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Now, the first officer's flight plan was supposed to be reviewed and approved by the captain, but in this instance, only Gillette's signature appeared on the plan, so it's not known if Williams looked at it or if he did but forgot to sign it. And here's the flight plan. Wow. And there is Gillette's signature, and And this is where the captain's signature is supposed to go. Yeah. So that's the the flight plan. Mm-hmm. So, at the time, it was the practice that the crew were the only people to look at the flight plan. Sure. That there wasn't, like, a traffic controller or a... No, uh, there's... No. Nobody else was reviewing this. So, the question is kind of like, did the captain see this at any point? If he didn't, why not? 
Did he just neglect that part of his duties? Did he forget to sign? Did he not notice that the first leg was off? It was kind of like an internal control problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So basically, if anything wrong on the plan got by the crew, it got by everybody. Mm -hmm. Because they were the only two people who were going to look at it. Um, It was confirmed that there was one lit air beacon in the area at the time. It was called the Arden Beacon or Beacon 24. Flight 3 should have passed to the left of that beacon. But it was determined that the last time Captain Williams flew Vegas to Burbank, uh, it was back in December, uh, Beacon 24 was blacked out. Okay. So it's possible he thought that it was a different beacon. Sure. And that he should have been passing to the right of it, which he did. So it could have been basically just confusion as to which beacon it was. Despite these confounding factors, the very good question remains, how did the crew not see a mountain in front of them? And that's, to be honest, it's not still fully known. There's certainly no indication that they had a death wish or anything like that. This seems to be fully an accident. So the idea is, okay, no moon out, blackout conditions except for the one beacon. They have lights on the plane, But let's say the cabin lights were dim. They were looking down at something, the flight plan maybe, whatever. And that was enough. Mm -hmm. That is possible. And so ultimately the cause of the crash was found to be pilot navigational error. Um, The CAB recommended stricter on-flight paths (laughs) plans. Um, here's, Here's a fun quote from the report. Quote, remain within the confines of the proper twilight zone. End quote. Oh. The twilight mm. zone mm. being like when the it's too dark yeah. to be able to tell by sight. So anyway. And that they also were like, um, so here's the thing. How about we make sure that planes are flying at least a thousand feet or 305 meters higher than any obstruction within a 10 mile radius yeah. or a Just 16 kilometer radius. Yeah. Like just, just assume make sure. somebody goes off course, make them fly a thousand feet higher, just to make sure. So, of course, the death of a major movie star is major news. Carol's death was no exception. Like many major events involving celebrities, there were also conspiracies sure. surrounding the crash. Um, and the fact that it's not 100% known why these pilots didn't see the mountain in front of them. In the book, My Lunches with Orson, author Peter Biskind quotes Orson Welles as saying to Henry Jaglum that a security agent from the United States government told him personally that Flight 3 was the victim of Nazi sabotage and was shot down by Nazis in Las Vegas. Uh, I know. that, but then that the that reality was kept a national secret in order to protect German Americans who might experience discrimination. None of that sounds accurate. To me. No, none of that, that sounds completely out. made up. It sounds totally made up. Yeah, totally made because up because it is. I think so. And even if Orson Welles heard it from somebody, I think that person was lying to him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so because this is this is during an era where a conspiracy theory wasn't in your pocket. Mm-hmm. Like, it was just like, yeah. you had to know people who knew people, and Orson Welles was like, hey, this guy that I know who's <laughs> got some connections, 
Like, it was the Nazis, bro. <laughs> and also, I know that, like, World War One was, or World War Two was all interrelated, but the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Now they're saying there's Nazis in America shooting down civilian planes? Yeah, like in 1942. Yeah, it, early 1942. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that Orson Welles is a bit of an eccentric. Just a bit. Um, oh, also, that they wanted to, that the United States government wanted to protect German Americans from discrimination. It's like, you motherfuckers locked up Japanese Americans. Yes, we, we would get to that. Now, granted, those are Asian people, and so therefore probably discriminated so much more against than European Americans, but still. At that time? Oh, absolutely. At it, that time, it's yes. Just, it's just... Any rate, there doesn't seem to be much to back up Orson Welles' claims. No. Um, also, if you also, just this is this is civilian flight in 1942, crashing it's... into the side of the mountain. It didn't get shot down; it crashed into a mountain. <laughs> like let's not like how this flight ended mm-hmm. wasn't all that surprising to me. No, yeah, like it's it's. It was a this tragic is, accident. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. but this is you don't have flight. Pl- well, no. you do have flight plans. Well, yes, but not the but the, you, the not like radar you have today. And, yeah. No, uh-huh. you don't have any of that. Mm-hmm. And you're I, that's that's why I'm like they're civilian fl- in 1942. Right. I was like what? Uh huh. Um. Also, if like you want to undermine anything Orson Welles says, just Google Orson Welles drunk commercial. Okay. And watch him do a wine commercial. <laughs> like in his wine. Well, he well, having already appears consumed. completely drunk. Um, although the director of the commercial is like, no, no, no. He was not drunk. He took a sleeping pill. <laughs> so he was under pills. Yes. And, so that's so much dr- better. And drinking. And drinking wine. Yeah. Because yeah. we all know so, that's, that's a great anyway, combo. I'm not trying to slander Orson Welles. I'm just saying. He probably believed what he heard or thought he heard but anyway i don't think that's what happened um anyway carol was buried next to her mother because yeah her mom she and her mom died mm-hmm. and which is so sad at forest lawn memorial park cemetery in glendale california anytime you read of a celebrity being buried it's in forest lawn like okay. that's like in one glendale, of the places huh? yeah and clark gable was said to be inconsolable by her sudden death understandably this is him like kind of in mourning mm-hmm. in a newspaper shot uh he her death triggered a drinking habit for him started drinking a quarter scotch a day wow yeah holy shit like that's that's a lot <laughs> it's a lot of scotch um and and he didn't kick that habit for the rest of his life yeah. in august of 1942 his movie had wrapped he was like well damn it i'm going for that enlistment that carol wanted me to do by god um some people theorize he had a little bit of a death wish like fine i was just going to say yeah it sounds like he was trying to kill himself well or maybe just trying to make her proud who knows but he became a bombardier that's when he yeah um and that's when the as yet made film about his and hitler's wacky adventures (laughs) came to didn't come to pass yeah the name of the movie I've already got is I Want Gable. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. It's like a Jojo Rabbit yeah. meets Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. 
Um, he wasn't quite forever inconsolable enough to not continue his marriage pattern. Well, yeah. He eventually married wife number four, Sylvia Ashley, in 1949, to divorce her in 52, to marry number five in 1955. Apparently, he had a child via a date rape, which is really disturbing. With, anyway, there's a whole... He's problematic, to say the least. Anyway, my first memory of hearing about the death of Carol Lombard was when I was reading about Lucille Ball. So I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show or not, but I grew up watching I Love Lucy. Like, when I was yeah, I'm four, not sure if you have mentioned it. I was watching I Love yeah. Lucy. I you love can, it. Yes, I can quote it backwards and forwards. I it Love is, Lucy and the Lucy show. It is pretty funny. It's fantastic. It really is. I mean, it's it's a little backwards at this point just because it was 70 years ago. But, yes, it's an amazing show. It revolutionized television. And I first heard of Carol Lombard by reading a quote from Lucy. And it was that she and Lucy, or she, she and Carol, Lucy and Carol, were friends early in Lucy's career. Because Lucy was like three years younger than Carol. And was coming up very much in the same screwball comedy sort of world of being like a Ziegfeld girl and then like trying to make her way in movies because TV was not around when she was much younger. And when she was starting contemplating going into TV and starting I Love Lucy, this was after Carol died because I Love Lucy started in I think either 50 or 51. Um, She would later be quoted as saying, quote, Everyone warned Desi and me that we were committing career suicide by giving up highly paid movie and band commitments to go for broke on TV. Then I dreamed about Carol Lombard. She was wearing a very smart suit, Carol always dressed beautifully, and she said, take a chance, honey, give it a whirl. After that, I knew for certain that we were doing the right thing. Hmm. End quote. So in a way, a weird way, Carol was responsible for I Love Lucy, which revolutionized television mm-hmm. so, and invented the three camera sitcom. So Carol Lombard is considered Hollywood's first World War II casualty. The U.S. Treasury Department released a statement saying, quote, she died for her country. End quote. Hmm. President Roosevelt said, quote, Mrs. Roosevelt and I are deeply distressed. Carol was our friend and guest in happier days. She brought great joy to all who knew her and to the millions who knew her only as a great artist. She gave unselfishly of her time and talent to serve the government in peace and in war. She loved her country. She is and always will be a star, one we shall never forget or cease to be grateful to. Wow. End quote. And that, my friends, was the story of TWA Flight 3 and the death of Carol Lombard. Happy birthday. She died 35 years to the day before your birth. Yes. For me, too. What? I'm, I'm kidding. I was, it was a joke. I said, for me, too. She died for me. She oh. Died for the country. <laughs> like, she died for your sins. Yeah. <laughs> well, she died for the, her country. This is the country oh, I was born Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And, you know, that's, that's something that I've thought a lot about recently. I think I mentioned it to you, like the idea I do not consider myself patriotic at all. And yet I'm a civil servant and I believe in paying taxes. (laughs) And I'm like, how am I more civic minded than people who claim to be patriotic? Well, because for the most part, it's just a slogan 
It's it, just yes. A, Patriotism is a front. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's no... Mm-hmm. There doesn't have to be any action behind it. You mm-hmm. just have to claim that you are a patriot, and then that's good enough. But I can't believe that, like, in the 1930s, Carol Lombard was saying, Yeah, I'm rich. Tax me. I'll make 13 cents on the dollar. I didn't make the dollar. I made 13 cents. That's fine. I want the schools. I want the public utilities. Yeah, that's crazy. And, and, and who so, would say and that now? Who has so said out, that since? So outside the box, even for the 1930s. Yes. Like. Yes. Mm. It's wild. I didn't know Carol know. Lombard, like socialist Democrat icon. It's yeah, pretty right. Wild. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. all things considered. Yeah. Wow. And so, so I'm gonna guess this is called TWA Flight Three because it was the third flight they ever attempted. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I honestly, that was the the crazy thing to me is like I didn't realize that there was any commercial. No, well, they, but. This, imagine this. So now, if you want to travel across the country, you do so in a giant 747 or something, yeah. right? They were taking a 24-seater plane. Yeah, from just stop to stop. And puddle jumping yeah. across the country. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. It's wild. <laughs> yeah. They they planned to have to refuel between New Mexico and Nevada. Yeah. That was typical. That's how little they could go. Little distance they could go. It's why it, the the aviation context was really hard to sort of grasp yeah. here, but it's this is now, nothing like now norm, to fly, like I mean, modern aviation. I mean, you can go from here to Las Vegas on one flight. Yeah, we did, we didn't did. we? Didn't we do yes. it nonstop? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh huh. But or you can go from here to California with just one stop. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be like. Can you imagine getting on a plane to go anywhere? And, like, having to stop, like, oh ten God. times. Like, you might like... as well take a fucking Greyhound. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it's cheaper. Or drive. Yeah, or fucking, right? You know, anything besides a well, plane. Well, think about this. They got on board in Indianapolis, yeah. halfway through the country, at 5.47 a.m., and it was 14 hours later yeah. that they were leaving Vegas. Yeah. You know? It's nuts. It, it was, ugh. Well, I mean, that was a. Uh, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Fun is not the right word because no, none of our fascinating. Are, yes, interesting. There's just so much to it, really. Yes. And though these are my, and this is again a weird thing to say, but my favorite disasters to research are the ones that have a historical context. Yes, you know, I I kind of think of our podcast well, as think, not think just a disaster podcast. Think of what's know? going on in the background mm-hmm. this whole time. The whole reason she's flying back. Is from, to sell war bonds. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole reason, right? The well, whole reason and she, she was thinks in her Indiana. husband's cheating on her. <laughs> yeah, it's like the yeah, which I'm sure he was. Yeah. Well, probably. Yeah, I mean, he was Clark he was. Gable. Yeah. That's not to say he wasn't very sad when she died or anything, but yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure he was, but yeah. still, he's just like, well, whatever. I'll just. Uh, well, wife seven years. Three, four, five. Seven years later, to be fair, yeah. it took him a while. Yeah. I mean, he was having affairs, but still. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's just interesting episode. And just everything that's going on in the background and just the episode mm-hmm. itself is just... It's fast. I find it fascinating. Yeah. I find it really interesting. And it happened almost exactly 80 years ago today. By the time this episode came it comes be. out, it'll be 80 years in one day. Yes, it will be. Yep. So that was TWA Flight 3. And the death of Carol Lombard. 
This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week.